All right, well, we're in Acts chapter 7. Um, now, usually I like to read the passage before I start. I'm going to do something a little bit different tonight. I am not going to read all 60 verses up front. Um, thank you, Tony. He's the one who does the scheduling. Um, what we're going to do, though, is uh, I'm going to mention a few things um, that lead up to chapter 7, and then we'll take... Um, chunks at a time. Um, so again, as we approach here, um, uh, Acts chapter 7, I couldn't help but to feel, um, uh, you know, when I look at Stephen, we look at an individual who's been falsely accused. And I don't know about you, but if you've ever been falsely accused, it is somewhat hurtful. Because you feel that, well, wait a minute, uh, you don't know the real situation. I wish you can climb into my head and you would know the truth. But with the way things are today, it's so easy just to slander someone or smear them. Um, just take a look at the news, right? It's very easy just to say, you know, I could look at Mickey and I say, you know what? He's a racist. I could walk away. I could walk away. And what would you think? You see, immediately I've, I've just dropped off a bomb and now he's got to pick up the pieces and, and kind of uh, defend himself. And so here we find this man, Stephen, he's confronted with a similar situation. And I entitled this message, how would you like to be remembered? How do you want to be remembered? So here we are um, in chapter six. Um, you know, Stephen uh, tells us, first of all, he, he is uh, by all intents and purposes, excuse me, chapter seven. He is the first church martyr. He was a man, as Acts 6 tells us, a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And there was an issue, again, in the early church where the Hellenistic widows were, were being uh, mistreated. They're being neglected by the Hebrews. Well, what's a Hellenistic widow? Well, uh, someone who was Hellenized was basically a Greek-speaking Jew. And so these women were being neglected. And so there was a problem. And they, they went before church leadership. They say, here's an issue. What do we do about this issue? They're being neglected. And so they thought, you know what? We don't want to neglect the word of God. We don't want to neglect praying because these are men who are caring for the body. You know, when we look at our church here, we're just not guys who, who just come in and punch a card and leave. Uh, we believe God has put us here for your care. You trust us with your finances. You were blood bought. Therefore, it's a heavy responsibility for our leadership to make sure you're cared for. And, and likewise, these folks saw that, that there is a need. They need to make sure they're caring for the church. So they were going to designate uh, seven guys, men who are wise and men who are born again, men who are full of the Holy Spirit. And um, they wanted to take care of these, these widows. And Stephen happened to be one of these seven men. Stephen had done great wonders and signs, as verse 8 of chapter 6 tells us, among the people. And Stephen's name means crowned or garland, uh, which fascinates me because uh, since it's the same word used of the Olympic events in their day, you know, uh, the winner of an event would be awarded a garland or a crown. And that's what his name meant, a crown or a garland. What a name befitting one who is going to give his life for the Lord rather than one who lives his life for his sport. A man given to the Lord. 
I think for the most part, all of us want to die nobly, right? As it relates to our identity with the Lord. And there's always that fear, at least for me, where I won't die nobly, right? We all have this fear that if a gun's aimed at my head, I'm going to cave in and and I'm going to renounce the Lord. You guys ever feel that way? That eventually we get to a point where that we might feel that way. Well, how about you? I've felt that way before. You know, and I remember a story many, many years ago when I first got saved, seeing a guy who's being interviewed, gun pointed at his head for the gospel. He guys sharing the gospel. Guy has a gun at his head, and he asked him to renounce the Lord. And he stood there, put his arms out, and he says, "You know what? I belong to the Lord." Matter of fact, you can't fire that gun unless he lets you. You don't have the power to do it. Only God would allow you. And that man sat there with the gun pointing for a long time and dropped his gun. He understood in that moment what he was trying to relate. God was in control. I always remember that. And there's always, again, this fear that we're, gonna, we're not going to live up to that moment. You know, we look at godly men and women of the Bible and we go, man, I, I want to be just like them. What a great example they are. They lay down their lives for the sake of the gospel. However, I, I truly believe if we're walking with our God, he will be with us. Just as he was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And just as he was with Stephen, as we're about to see. And hopefully when we're done, you should have the confidence in knowing that He is with us. And He's going to be with, with us in that day. Whether it's a car accident, whether it's a trauma center, or if we live long enough, we're in a convalescent home and we're alone, or we're at a tribunal. He is with us. And when you're involved in the work of God, you can be rest assured you're going to receive some opposition. Now, sometimes that opposition may be just argumentation, But sometimes that opposition could lead to a point where it may end up taking your life. Acts 6 tells us that um, there are men from the synagogue of the freedmen who opposed Stephen. And apparently they approached Stephen, they argued with Stephen, but they weren't able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. So rather than being honest and consider his argumentation, They persuaded men to manufacture and distort the facts. They distorted the things that Stephen actually said. It was the same tactic they used on Jesus. Fake news. It was fake news then, and it's fake news now. Nothing has changed. They said he spoke against Moses and God. They also set up false witnesses, as verse 13 says. When they said... He speaks blasphemous words against this holy place. He is speaking against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth is going to destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. These are evil men. So Stephen is brought before the council to answer their allegations that were trumped up against him. Stephen, no doubt prompted by the Spirit, Assesses the situation. He understands. He understands that this is an opportunity to bear witness of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He saw this as a monumental opportunity. 
Now, I wish we could all be there and, and understand the significance of the moment that we, were, that we would be there and experience what, what Stephen is going through. And I'm reminded of what Jesus told his disciples regarding the opposition they would face when he was gone. Luke 21, 12 states, But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. In other words, you're going to bear witness of me. Therefore, settle in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I, I will give you a mouth. I will give you wisdom, which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Sounds familiar here regarding Stephen. Again, before we move on, let's take a moment and let's look at how the Holy Spirit works. Turn with me to John chapter 15. I think it's important for us to understand how the Spirit of God works. John 15, verse 26 says, But when He, or when the, whole, uh, the Helper comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will testify of me, and you will also, also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you, Interesting. Now he's, he's telling us up front the possibility that they might kill you. They will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. Jump down to verse uh, 8. Verse 8. And when he has come, again, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. And of judgment because the ruler of this world is judge. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he, he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. That's the work of the spirit of God. The Spirit of God, does He speak from heaven? Well, He can. But do you know who He speaks through? Through you. He uses human agency. He uses people to manifest His work. He uses you and I to bear witness of Jesus Christ. He uses your lives. And that's a convicting thing, right? Because we know who we are. What do you mean you're going to use me? How, how can you use me? In my workplace? At school, Lord, they, they, they know my past. They know how I am. Yeah, he will use you. Because you, as you walk with the Lord, your, your life should be a transformation before their eyes. You're, you're a living epistle. And so here he is. He's brought before the council. The council is the Sanhedrin, the same council that convicted Jesus to death. It even had the same high priest. It's Caiaphas, which he would, of course, hold the office for the next four or five years, around to 37 AD. And the Sanhedrin was made up of 71 members, and they met in a chamber hewn out of stone in the temple complex. And what the, the Sanhedrin did was rule on legislative and judicial matters. 
And again, set before us is this man who's at the epicenter, if you will, whose face is shining like an angel. And he's going to give one of the longest testimonies found in Scripture. And the allegations are brought forth. And notice here what Caiaphas says in verse 1. He says, Then the high priest said, Are these things so? Are they so? And again, what's, what's amazing and what follows is the account given to us by Stephen. He knew the Bible and he knew his history. And keep in mind, he was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. I'm going to keep repeating that because it's important for us to understand. Because sometimes we get lost in, in, in the, the narrative. You know, we think it's, it's human agency or we think it's, it's man's ability. It's not. It's, it's the Spirit of God who carries a man. And what was at stake was traditional Judaism and Christianity, which for all intents and purposes, the Scripture was misappropriated by the religious Jews. And throughout this passage, Stephen is doing two things. He's going to give an account of what he really believes, but two, he's going to illustrate how they are just of guilty of rejecting the Messiah, just as their forefathers were when they rejected all those sent before them. He's going to point that out to them. They're just as guilty. Here's a man chosen from the seven. And I love this about him. He's called to wait on Hellenistic widows. He's a servant. He's a servant. It's not like he's sitting as a pastor of the church. He is serving these widows. He's, he is caring for these ladies who have no husbands. And he's there serving them. And the next time we find him, he's standing before the Sanhedrin, giving testimony of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The same group which condemned Jesus to death will be the same group that physically takes him out of the temple complex and murders him the same day. And there's no resistance and there is no call for calm. This same group, which is supposed to represent an unbiased judgment, unjustly condemns Stephen. And the Spirit of God, He puts this down for us. He wants us to know these things. The early church and our church needs to know these things because they could occur to us. It could very well happen to us. But we belong to God. The world's going to hate us. That's evident. The world's going to hate us. And are you prepared for that? He is brought before this council to give answer to the false allegations made by them. But by the time we get towards the end of the chapter, he is the one accusing them of rejecting the Holy Spirit, rejecting his prophets, and ultimately rejecting the one whom they murdered. Let's look at the first bit of evidence. Let's look at verses 1 through 8. It says here, Then the high priest said, Are, are these things so? And, and he said, Brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. Interesting verse, because we don't have this commentary in the book of Genesis. You know, Mesopotamia was a region where both the Tigris and Euphrates rivers ran through, which was known as the, the Fertile Crescent. You may have heard that. And the Fertile Crescent ran from Iraq all the way up through Syria to the Mediterranean Sea. And so it tells us that God not only called Abraham, but he appeared to him in Mesopotamia. Why is this important? 
It's important because Abraham did not worship the God of the Bible as we know it. That's important. He was an idolater. And he worshipped other gods. Remember, in those days, not like our days, in those days, everybody worshipped some god. They worshipped something. It's only today, in our era, where atheism is prevalent. Joshua 24.2 says, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river. Which river? The river Euphrates in old times. And they served other gods. Down to verse 14, it says, Now therefore, fear the Lord, serve Him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. And he, of course, the exhortation, serve the Lord. Abraham and his family worshipped and served other gods. He was a pagan. He was a Gentile. Also, to uh, another important note here is, there, at that time, there was no such thing as a Hebrew. There were no Jews. Abraham was an idolater, and not only was he an idolater, but a Gentile, a non-Jew. Abraham was from Ur of the Chaldees, and God appears to him in Mesopotamia before he dwells in Haran. Well, we know the story, right? He eventually becomes the father of the Jews. He will be the first Jew. Now, I ask this question. Now, why did God call Abraham? I mean, he could have picked anybody, right? Could have been 6'5", put together, you know, what we envision someone who's popular. doesn't tell us. God just chose this pagan and decided to use him. And to birth a nation. And I think this is probably one of the points Stephen is trying to make. This man has a foundational role as it relates to Jewish ancestry. Notice here verse 3. So before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there... When his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them for hundred years of course he's referring to egypt and how the jews would be enslaved by the egyptians for 400 years in hindsight this is an incredible prophecy given to abraham in genesis 15 it's an incredible prophecy he never told abraham which nation his uh the descendants would be in bondage to do you realize that he said that they would be in bondage to a nation. Never told him it was Egypt. I can only imagine if he told him it would be Egypt, where do you think he'd be going? You're darn right, the other way. Right? But he never told him. And this is all before Sarah was even pregnant with Isaac. This is before she even bore any children. Again, what an incredible prophecy. But you have to have descendants in order for this to occur. And 
the last time I looked, at that time, Abraham looked in his tent, and the only person that was in there was Mrs. Abraham. There were no kids in there. It was just him and his wife. That's it. How is this prophecy going to be fulfilled? Well, we know the story. Notice here, and the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. Notice, in this place. Where, where was this place? Mount Sinai. We can see God's calling of Abraham. Establishing the father of the nation. Confirm the covenant of circumcision. Establishing the twelve patriarchs. And it's no fair. Only God can summarize all those years in one verse. You know, and that's what he does. He, he just takes all these years and just condenses it. And I could just see the people as they're sitting there, the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin basically sat in, a, in this room, in a semicircle, where all the men would sit and they put the person right dead center and they began to just ask the questions and they would respond. And I can imagine as, as Stephen is given this account, they're engaged, they're tracking. You know, you don't hear any opposition. You don't say, ah, that's not true. They're tracking, they're engaged. Remember, they see the face of an angel and he's, he's speaking. God is moving him. Let's look at the second bit of evidence. God's call of Joseph, verses 9 through 16. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But notice, but God was with him. Man, put your name there. All the difference of the world. But God is with Don. God is with Mike. God is with Pete. Does that make all the difference in the world? But God was with him. What Stephen is doing is he's very calculated and intentional. He's beginning to draw them in. So far, again, they see the face of an angel. He's illustrating their history as they knew it. And no doubt everyone is engaged. And let's not forget who else is present there. Saul of Tarsus. We'll see him in verse 58. Saul is there. And he's there. He's taken in Stephen's testimony. And, and no doubt this will have lingering implications on Paul after his, his conversion for years to come. So they're all there. They're trekking with Stephen. They're, seeing, they're saying that he's, act, he's factually accurate. And they're mentally checking off the boxes. Abraham was, you know, Abraham was an idolater check. Uh, he never personally inherited the land check. He had Isaac check. He, had, he was given the, the covenant of circumcision check. And, and they're tracking with him. He's, a, he's right. He's accurate. They're right there with him. And what Stephen says next is, Joseph was being called by God to be their deliverer. And yet he was rejected by his own. Specifically by who? The other 11 patriarchs. You guys remember the dreams he had when Joseph had those dreams? How all the sheaves bowed down to him that they would he would reign over them? Remember his brothers didn't like that dream? Later, he was given another dream. And in that dream, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars all bowed down to him. And they were all symbolic of his family. And when his dad heard 
uh, the, the dream. Remember, he was upset too. And he, he rebuked him. Matter of fact, it says in Genesis 37.10, it says, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Your mother and I and your brothers indeed are going to come down and bow down to the earth before you? No way. He rebuked them. How, how can you say that? And then we're told that his brothers were moved with envy. They were moved with envy. But his father kept this matter to himself. So what Stephen was underscoring is they didn't receive Joseph as a deliverer initially. It wasn't until he was sold off into slavery. It wasn't until he became second only to Pharaoh. And then until they had that dubious encounter with him in Egypt, right? Did they finally receive him? And gladly did they receive him. Stephen is making the point that this was God's man. He was to be their deliverer. They didn't receive him, but they despised and rejected him. Sound familiar? And it wasn't until later, that, again, that they gladly received the man God had called. He's making the case how they, too, committed the same error in respect to Jesus Christ. God sent a deliverer, and you rejected him. He thrust him away. Notice verse 10 here. Let me read verse 9 again. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan. And notice, our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first and the second time joseph was made known to his brothers and joseph's family became known to pharaoh then joseph sent and called his father jacob and all his relatives to him 75 people 75 people came into egypt with jacob and so jacob went down to egypt and he died he and our fathers and they were carried back to shechem and laid in a tomb that Abraham brought or bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. What's interesting is the Hebrews at this point in time were nomadic. They had no land of their own, as it were. They were known as shepherds. Conversely, we're told in Genesis 46:34 that shepherds were an abomination to the Egyptians. It's you know it's interesting because I looked up you know. What was so abominable about them? I mean, the Egyptians had, there's many reasons. I read like six. Well, you know, one of them was they viewed them like, like we see gypsies today. They were just not trusted. But then there, there's also another story I thought was interesting with that the, the, the Phoenicians were considered shepherds. And they came, invaded, and conquered the Egyptians. So if that's the case, and you can see why they detested shepherds. But for all that, I just have the scripture. All I can say is, to the Egyptians, the Jews were an abomination to them because they were shepherds. However, because Joseph was in good standing with Pharaoh, especially because he single-handedly rescued Egypt from seven years of famine while the rest of the known world was starving, he found favor with Pharaoh. So Pharaoh gave to the Jews the land of Goshen to settle in. But of course, 
you know, God had his hand on his people and they began to multiply. God had blessed them. The people began to flourish. They began to outnumber the Egyptians. Their, their fields, their, the, their harvest were bountiful over the Egyptians. Everything they did was bountiful. God was blessing the Hebrews. And then it tells us that there arose a king who did not know Joseph. So keep that in mind. There's a king who did not know Joseph. Let's look at the third bit of evidence in verse 17 through 36. He says, But when the time of promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt. Till another king, another. And here it's, it's the word heteros, another kind. Not alos, the same kind, another kind. So another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Words and deeds. Again, we have something here we don't find anywhere else. He was mighty in words and deeds. Which I find interesting because um, Moses argues with God at the burning bush. Remember that? What does he say to God? I have a hard time talking, right? And yet here we have he's mighty in words and deeds. Well, there's two things I could think of. Well, one, he was 40 years old when he left Egypt. By, the time, by this time, he's 80. Maybe a physical problem now. Or, I'm going to allude to it right now. And we're told by Josephus that Pharaoh's daughter, which Josephus calls uh, Thermuthis, that's what he calls her, um, she was captivated when she saw Moses. She was captivated over his size and his beauty. Uh, she, being childless, adopted Moses. You know, she pulled him from, from the water. And Josephus also said that Moses was superior in learning and intellect compared to the children of his age. He was the equivalent of a child prodigy. Being in the royal family meant Moses had the finest teachers. Each teacher was handpicked by the king himself. He would have been educated in writing. And in those days, handwriting was a premium. Not like today, right? Everyone types. You're asking a kid to handwrite? Yeah, they don't know how, right? Um, and that day, it was a premium. Uh, composition was important. They learned non-Egyptian languages especially in respect to diplomacy and state matters. They learned law. They learned medicine. They learned oral communication. Students had to learn to speak properly and convincingly. Again, something that was uh, revered in that day. Um, students in the royal family had to learn archery. They had to learn horsemanship, chariot driving, hand and hand-to-hand -hand combat. They also had to learn the religion of the day, the pantheon of Egyptian gods. Moses was, was highly educated. He grew up in the royal home. Josephus also recounts that by the time Moses had become a man, probably close to his 30s, uh, that the nearby Ethiopians went to war with Egypt, in which many of the Egyptians fled 
which resulted in the Ethiopians pillaging Egypt. They ransacked Egypt. Pharaoh's daughter, began, she begins to plead with Pharaoh. You need to have Moses take care of this. Put him in charge. Let, let him lead a campaign. And uh, Pharaoh um, wouldn't at first, but eventually he caved in and he allowed Moses to take charge and attack the Ethiopians. Why did she plead? Well, there was a, a, a distrust between the Egyptian leadership uh, towards Moses. Because when Moses was a baby, there was an oracle given. And you know what that oracle was? That, when, that he would be the downfall of Egypt. Isn't that interesting? This oracle said, this baby right here is going to be the downfall of Egypt. So they distrusted him. So again, Pharaoh finally concedes, and Moses is given the green light, and he attacks the Ethiopians. And he's able to successfully drive them back and defeat them. You know, I find that all very interesting since Stephen gives us this commentary, and it's found nowhere else in Scripture, that he was mighty in words and deeds. Now, it could mean that he was mighty in what he said, and he was mighty in what he did. It could also mean that. He was a pretty amazing individual before he left Egypt to live on the backside of Midian. And I was thinking about this. You know, and what a lesson for us that God is the one leading and directing us. And wherever he takes us, it'll be used for his glory. Moses left Egypt when he was 40 years old to go live in Midian, to tend sheep for 40 years. In those 40 years, he learned how to care for sheep. He learned how to lead the sheep. He learned how to feed the sheep. He learned to understand the sheep. Because God wasn't done with him. And unbeknownst to Moses, God was preparing him to deliver and lead the people. And what an, again, what an incredible lesson for you and for me. Where has God taken you? Are you disappointed? Are you looking at your situation through the lens of the eternal? Well, I don't like my job. Man, my job sucks. School sucks. My friends suck. My girlfriend, my boyfriend, man, this is horrible. Again, who's your God? I always tell people, big God, little problems. Little God, big problems. How big is your God? Verse 23. Now when he was 40 years old, he came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. Notice, for he supposed, and I, I think he was genuine in this, he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. But they, notice, they did not understand. Again, here's Stephen underscoring the point here. He's making the point that their fathers did not recognize or understand Moses was to be their deliverer. They couldn't imagine that the one they rejected would return to be the one to deliver them. But it was all God's timing, not Moses. Moses slew the Egyptian, preempting God's timing, and he, thinking he was fulfilling his destiny, was rejected. 
And they, when they said to him, Who made you judge and ruler over us? I, who do you think you are? And this was Stephen's point. Their forefathers rejected another of God's deliverers. And he's saying, are, again, he's saying, are you seeing a pattern here, guys? You, re, you refuse Joseph. You re, refuse Moses. And now you're calling me to question, to question me over this deliverer, Christ Jesus? Is that what you're calling me in for? Notice verse 26. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler or a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this same Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian where he had two sons. And when forty years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in the bush, in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And notice, Moses trembled and dared not look. We're told in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, that when God spoke to Moses, that Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look upon God. I find that interesting. He had been in Midian 40 years. And I'm sure he knows the lay of the land like the back of his hand. And he's, he's never seen a burning bush in his life before. And he's never heard the voice of God before. And so he's afraid. He's afraid to look at God. And I don't know about you. Man, I... I in my mind, I'd, I'd love to see the, the face of God, wouldn't you? I would love to see what he looks like. But I've never heard the voice of God the way Moses heard him. Or his presence. Because we know his presence, they say there's a weight of glory. So I'm sure Moses is just afraid. He's trembling with fear. And who is the, the angel speaking to Moses? Who is the voice coming out of the burning bush? It was the voice of the pre-incarnate Christ. Jesus was in the burning bush, speaking to Moses. Then the Lord said to him, verse 33, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. This is a custom that's still done today, guys. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and have come down to deliver them, and now I will send you to Egypt. This, notice what Stephen is saying here. This Moses, whom you rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and the Red Sea and the wilderness 40 years. Again, they brought up these accusations, charging him with speaking against Moses. They brought up charges against them, speaking against the law. And notice this counter-argument is, our fathers are the ones who challenged Moses. They're the ones who challenged his authority. And Stephen is meticulously placing them in the same camp as their forefathers. That's what he's doing. 
He's saying, you guys are no different. No different. They don't know it yet, but he's making his point. Notice verse uh, 37. This is that Moses, the one they revered, who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, him you shall hear. Moses prophesied about the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. He's saying, you're the guilty ones here. You refuse the one that Moses prophesied about, the guy that you revere. He said, he's sending one. He sent him. And guess what? You rejected him. This is he, verse 38, who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles given to us. Again, verse 38 is interesting to us to interpret this passage because Stephen is quoting the Old Testament using the Greek Septuagint. You know, if you guys know, the, the Greek Septuagint is basically a translation of the Old Testament in Greek. And, he's, and this word here for congregation is our, our word for church, ecclesia. It's, it means assembly, it means congregation, or it means church. And I always find this word interesting because it sounds like our Spanish word for church, doesn't it? What's the Spanish word for church? Iglesia, right? Very similar. And, and notice in verse 39 here, he says, Whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. They turned their hearts back to Egypt. Do you remember how they responded? Do you remember what they said? Let me remind you. Exodus 16, verse 3 says, And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, and when we had we ate bread to the full. Numbers 11.5, he says, We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic, all, all this stuff. Boy, I can remember. But you know what they forgot? They forgot the whip. They forgot the bondage. They forgot the fact that they were enslaved at one time. And this is what their fathers did. They rejected the living oracles of God, the word of God, and their hearts lusted after Egypt. We need to be careful because we live in Egypt, don't we? Once you leave these doors, we live in Egypt. We've been free from the bondage of this world, and yet we go back out and we enslave ourselves again into things we ought not to be doing. The things we see, the things we do, the things we shouldn't visit, and yet we do. God has freed us from all that. And yet we entangle ourselves all over again, and we lust after Egypt. And that's, that's a battle that will occur to the day we die. Because that's what we're made up, right? Our flesh. That's what we compete with. And so he says here, they lusted after Egypt. And he's, and he's saying here, are you saying I'm speaking blasphemous words towards the law? Really? Let's do a side-by-side comparison here, if you will. Notice verse 40. <clears throat> He's saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. For this Moses, who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the eye, and rejoiced in the works of their hands. And, and again, I, at this moment, I can only imagine... The Sanhedrin, as they're listening to him, they're engaged. Again, there's, there's no objection. 
They're trekking with him. They're trekking with him. They're trekking with him. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle, tabernacle of Moloch, one of the worst practices they ever did. I mean, here you have this iron idol, fired up red hot with flames, right? And they put your baby in the arms of Moloch. One of the worst practices Israel ever experienced. They ever committed. One of the worst things they did. They took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Remphan. Images which you made to worship. And I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Carry you away beyond Babylon. He says, remember this? What God had to say regarding the fathers? They refused to honor Moses. They refused to honor the law or to listen to his law. They refused to do what you're accusing me of. He says, verse 44, Our fathers had a tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, he quotes Isaiah here, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? <laughs> he alludes to these people. They falsely accuse me of not honoring Moses. Have you considered the nation has a history of not recognizing any of, of the deliverers God has sent? You cast them all away. He's making the point here. They have not received one of them. They accuse me of not acknowledging the law, that I defamed the law, our fathers were the ones who became idolaters and were carried away to Babylon because they refused to listen to the law. You accuse me of speaking evil in respect to this temple. You guys have venerated the temple beyond what God expected. And God himself says he could never be restricted to a building built of human origin. He doesn't say God cannot be found there. It says he cannot be restricted to a building or a facility. You know, when we meet on Sunday, Tuesday, or Thursday, we come expecting to be in His presence. But not because He lives in this building. Okay? God's here because you're here. You're the church. When you leave, it's no longer the church. It's a building. You're the church. 2 Corinthians 6, 16 says, And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you... You here are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. God lives in people. He doesn't live in a structure. He's not in a box. He's not in a bottle like a genie. He lives in us. Only God can do that. 
Now Stephen exposes the Sanhedrin for being just like their fathers. Notice verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. I don't think Stephen ever read the book, How to Make Friends and Keep Them. Uh, And this is not how church growth occurs, right? Um, You know, Paul told uh, Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, how they were you know, supposed to conduct themselves in the church of God or the house of God. He says, which is the church, the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. The ground of truth. Truth. And this is what they resisted, just as their fathers did. He had gone as far back as one can go. He started with Abraham. He's making his case. He moves to Joseph, the first deliverer, and they rejected him. Then he moves on to Moses, the second deliverer, and they rejected him. And remember, in all this, his face is shining like an angel. Saul is there taking all these things in. He's listening to these things, and no one's objecting. He knows his Bible. He knows his history. And as they're sitting there on the edges of their seats, he lets them have it. He lets it all fly out. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised of hardened ears, you always resist Always, always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. What a charge. What a charge. Strike number one. You know, years later, Paul would make a similar argument in the book of Romans. Why? Well, he remembers this moment. He remembers what it was like to know the law yet not know the one who inspired the law, Jesus Christ. What does John 1, 1 say? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was the beginning with God. And Saul could acknowledge that he was just like his forefathers. He was just like them. Turn with me to Romans chapter 2. Verse 17, we're going to go read down to verse 24, where he says here, Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law. Do you think Paul understands this? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you. Now, jump down to verse 28. The same chapter. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is not is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. That's a true Jew. One inwardly. Not externally. Inwardly. Jews boast in the very things that condemn them. 
let's look at the, let's finish up here in verse 52. He says here, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one of whom, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Boom. Strike number two. You are just like your fathers. You are betrayers and you are murderers. Worse yet, you murder the final deliverer, Christ Jesus. The one foretold by the prophets, the one explained through the scriptures. You are supposed to be a legislative body, a judicial body, and you have responded the same ways our fathers did. You killed the Holy One. Stephen had turned the whole thing around on the Sanhedrin. Now, I don't think Stephen knew that next few moments he was going to be taken outside and murdered. Because in his mind, he thought, well, the only ones who had the right to capital punishment was Rome. They had the power of capital punishment, not them. But he was wrong. He did not know he was going to be taken out. And what we're going to discover here is not one person objected to his death. Everyone consented to his death, especially Saul. And you could pick this up in, in uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Let's look at God's call of Stephen in verses 54 through 60. Let's wrap it up here. And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed them with their teeth. Notice here, they were cut to the heart. The Greek means to saw in two. It has this idea of this action uh, in, in where it's sawing and cutting in two rather than a knife. You know, a knife just, you slice in half. A saw just kind of just has this agitation that occurs and he's saying they, they were cut to the heart. And notice they, they gnashed with their teeth. It, it doesn't mean that they got up and began to bite them like some zombie, okay? Um, they... This picture here is they, they clench their teeth and their veins are bulging out of their necks and their foreheads and they're hissing through their teeth and, the, and they're prepared to take them. And to me, it's fascinating to see this scene unfold. He has set the stage. He's laid out their history. They're trekking with him and he opens the curtain to reveal a mirror reflecting that they're the guilty ones. They're the ones who are guilty. Notice verse 55 here. But he, being full, again, of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man, <clears throat> excuse me, Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice, Stop their ears. They, they covered their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge him with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, fell asleep is just a euphemism that he died. He didn't actually go memes, okay? He died. They were cut to the heart. They were overcome with conviction. And rather than admit he was right and they were wrong and ask for forgiveness, they gnashed their teeth in fury. And that's the picture of man, especially of a religious man. Even an atheist is religious. 
He has put his faith in absolutely nothing. You ever think about that? An atheist believes in nothing. They're religious. They believe it. That's what faith is, right? You believe in something. They believe in nothing. Think about that. So they too resist the conviction of the Holy Spirit. John 16 tells us that the Holy Spirit, what He does is, when He has come, He will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. He speaks to our hearts about our sin and our need for a Savior. Again, we just read that Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit and God is bearing him along and how we need His help. I would hate to find myself in a situation where it's just me. Because guess what? I will run. I will run. I need Him to empower me because He will give me the ability in that day. He promises that. We are insufficient. We fall short. And, and notice Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. In most of the passages we find in Scripture, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. Kind of interesting. This is the only passage I know that Jesus is actually standing at the right hand of the Father. He's there, ready to receive Stephen. That's comforting for me. This isn't like, he doesn't know, like he's too busy on the other side of the universe. He's concerned for each and every one of us. He's taken outside of the city and he's murdered. You know, um, we're told that when a person um, has been past judgment, they're going to they're gonna execute them. And the method is stoning. What they do is, uh, the witnesses, the people that are involved in the trial, they're the ones who take you out and stone you. So what they do is, because it's an arduous ordeal, uh, you know, for example, if I had to take Don and take him out and have him stoned, man, I'm taking off my clothes because he's going to resist. And that's what they do. They, they take their clothes off, uh, clothes off, as we just saw here, and they, they lay their, their clothes at uh, Saul's feet. And what they would do is take you to a high area in which the, the ground below is stony. There are rocks below. And so they take you up and they would strip you naked. And after they stripped you naked, then they would cast you down, landing on the stony ground, breaking you so you wouldn't resist. And at that point, the witnesses would all take stones and stone you until you died. And that's the picture here of Stephen. He's taken outside the city. He is cast. He is thrust down into the ground and he is stoned to death. This is the first martyr. This is the first Christian martyr recorded for us in Scripture. And, and God wants us to know this. It's important for you and I to know that He is with us. The world is going to hate us because our message is a lot different than the world's message. What is the saying? Every dead fish flows downstream. It takes a live one to go up one. As believers, we need to be encouraged. This Scripture, believe it or not, encourages me. Because... If the world hates us, that means I'm in a good place. I'm in a good place. Believe me, I don't like to be hated, okay? But I'm in a good place. That means I'm standing along with my Savior. Jesus is the Son of God whom they rejected. And you might be here tonight. You might have been invited here tonight, and you're not a believer. The truth is Jesus is the Son of God. He came to this planet for one thing. 
One thing only, to die for you, for your sins. You could have been the only person on the face of the planet, and he would come down to rescue you, because that's who he is. And maybe God is dealing with your heart tonight. And don't commit the same error that Sanhedrin did. Don't reject the Messiah. Receive Jesus as your Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you again, and Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for um, Stephen's example, Lord. A man who, who knew the Scripture, Lord. A man that, Lord, had given his life to you, Lord. And Lord, uh, unjust men uh, took his life. But Lord, you, you promised that you're with us. And Lord, I just pray for everybody here. Lord, uh, you know their circumstances. You know as they leave um, the environment they work at or, or school or wherever they're at, Lord. I just pray you just go before them. Lord, bless them where they're at. And Lord, that they would be encouraged. That you would give them the peace that surpasses understanding. Because Lord, we know it never comes from understanding. And so, Lord, we commit ourselves to you. And if there's anybody here tonight that doesn't know Christ as Savior, I just ask that you repeat this prayer. I always offer this because this is what the Scripture expects, that you accept Jesus as, as the forgiver of your sins. Just repeat after me, Lord, I come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, I ask you to cleanse me of my sin. I accept your Son as my Savior. And lead me all the days of my life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.